The Nourish and Shine podcast is provided for educational and informational purposes only, and it is not medical, mental health, or healthcare advice. The information presented here is not intended to diagnose, treat, heal, cure, or prevent any illness, medical condition, or mental or emotional condition. Please make sure you consult with a trusted healthcare professional before you make any changes. Welcome to Nourish and Shine, where I talk with passionate leaders in the fields of nutrition, functional and integrative medicine, and wellness, providing inspiration and practical advice to nourish your mind, body, and spirit, optimize your health, and live a whole vibrant life starting now. Welcome to Nourish and Shine. Today I am talking with Jennifer Carrigan. I am so excited to have her back on. If you happen to miss the last episode that we recorded together, please go back and check it out. The title of it is called Mindful Eating During Times of Stress and Anxiety. It was published on June 24th. So welcome back, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, Amy. Pleasure to be here. Our last conversation was so wonderful, and today we're going to dive into kind of the impact of food and our relationship with food and what that means to our kids and how we raise our kids. But before we get into that, I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself, just in case they didn't catch it on the last episode. Sure. Um, so I am. I work in Barcelona. Uh, I live in Barcelona. I'm from London originally, from the UK, and I work as a behavioral eating coach, um, which in, in plain speak, is really uh, supporting people through any, um, any and all eating challenges they may have in terms of um, body image, self-esteem, dieting, chronic dieting, uh, binge eating, the full spectrum of um, potentially tricky and troublesome behaviors um, that might be getting in the way of somebody really living a full, a full and fulfilling life. Um, so I have a broad spectrum of clients. They range from twenty-something um, guys to fifty-something high-powered CEO females with with you know um, juggling families and businesses. So you know it goes to show there's a universality sometimes to the often complicated relationship we have with food. When it comes to like our relationship with food and how that impacts others, what's been your experience around that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, there's a certain degree, obviously, depending on the context of, of, of where and who you're talking about, um, whether it's a family unit, whether it's your peers at work, whether it's a friendship group. Um, I think there's very much a sort of a, a porousness to the attitudes and the, the, um, the kind of the influential appeal or, or, you know, when somebody's eating in a group, let's say, give an example, a brunch with your girlfriends, it's very hard to kind of stay in your own lane, I think, nowadays with um, opinions around food, latest diets, protocols, clean eating plans. And the minute somebody uh, vocalizes or shows or demonstrates that they are uh, eating a certain way or restricting a certain food group, let's say, it's it's all too common and it's very human for us to suddenly start considering our own uh, eating choices and and what's on our plate. So and you know that can, that can be a very real and common scenario for people in the office when you're checking out. You know, there's the constant diet chats in in offices, certainly in the UK, and I'm I'm pretty sure in the states as well. And all of a sudden, there's this comparison piece around what other people are choosing to put in their mouths, how that reflects on you know their um their diet speak their body goals etc and before you know it you're you're in this kind of strange comparison probably within you know members of your own family within your own friendship circles and i think it's all it takes is a certain degree of insecurity and um already you know an existing kind of body hang up and it can it can often i sort of see it as a social a bit of a social virus really dieting because I think it can really domino and really, you know, one throwaway comment from a friend, especially if that friend might be um, smaller bodied than you and she's dieting, it immediately sets up this, this sense of, well, actually, maybe I should be doing something too. And, and that's, you know, that's within adults. So if we're talking about the context of a family unit and children, um, 
there's every possibility and every likelihood that if parents are dieting, the kids are incredibly, uh, you know, kids are incredibly sponge-like and they will, they will spot that. They will observe, they will note that their parents are potentially eating something different from them at mealtimes. And yeah, you, you, there's multiple scenarios where you could argue that people don't stay in their own lane when it comes to their meal choices. We're social beings. We look at what everyone else is eating around us. And essentially, we start to ask questions when other people are choosing to eat different things. So for parents listening, there's an awful, an awful lot of uh, a necessity, let's say, to you know, with self-compassion, because, you know, we might be bringing our own stuff to the table as well in terms of pre-existing or or previous diet hang-ups. But there's a a huge piece around understanding and being very, very aware that your choices will be observed, picked up and potentially modelled by by the people and the children around you. When you talk about that, it makes me even think of my own life experience. And as a child of the 80s, I mean, diets and various eating plans are definitely not new. And I remember like my mom and her friends getting together and like weighing themselves and eating salads. And, you know, I remember that from a really young age. And I think you kind of just grow up seeing it and observing it, but it becomes sort of ingrained. Ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really hard, I think, even, you know, like multi-generational dieting, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And so um, yeah. how yeah. do people start to really break that? Especially if you did grow up kind of seeing that and experiencing that, how do you break that and not do that in front of your children? I think, I mean, like most of the, most of the, like the cornerstone of how I coach Amy, it's all about awareness. You know, it's about awareness and it's about self-compassion because these things, if, if we've, if we've grown up with parents that were chronic dieters themselves and, and our cupboards were laden with low fat, low this, low that, it's very hard to, you know, we, we know, we know that it's not an overnight process. We know that kind of stepping outside of that rhetoric of diet culture, it doesn't happen overnight. And, I think the key to all of this is to, you know, in order to establish a a healthy framework within which children can thrive and be positive around food and learn to trust their own appetites and learn the neutrality of the food landscape, i.e. it's not good, it's not bad, it's food. There's food for treats. There's food for making, making your body strong. You know, there's a, way to, there's a way to frame food or reframe food, I should say, if you're a parent that's grown up with that diet language of naughty and nice, good and bad, sinful and clean, you know, let's say the, the languaging. There's a way to reframe all of that so that it, it, it takes this binary um, good and bad uh, out of out of labeling food, which I think is a really like strong first point to start is is try and encourage at the dinner table, even if you don't fully believe it as a parent, you know, because obviously this is really healing for people that start practicing this. If you're not fully over diet culture yourself as a parent, and you start putting these very um, non-binary, uh, um, neutral kind of principles in place at the dinner table, it will heal your own relationship with food as well. So it's a bit of a parenthesis, but the first place I'd I'd say is try very, very hard not to label food at the dinner table, good or bad. You know, it's not, it's not naughty. It's not nice. It is food. You know, it's delicious. It's new. It's, it's, it's um, vitamin rich. It's all these other adjectives, but it certainly isn't, um, you know, sinful or, or, um, or virtuous, you know, so get rid of the binary stuff, number one. And I think also really going back to the conscious awareness piece, you know, that it's, it's vital, I think, as parents that we, we take an honest view, an honest lens on how we are both talking inwardly to ourselves about the food on our plate and the, the reflection that we see in the mirror and the, the obviously the, the correlation between what we what we look like and what we eat and what how we view ourselves and how that translates uh, in the in the family home in terms of maybe you um, maybe it's it's a sense of not inviting kids to um, serve themselves their own portion whereas actually I'm a big believer in that because I think if we can give children the autonomy to um, select 
what's right for them based on their intuitive hunger signals, you're, you're allowing your child to become an intuitive eater from a very early age. And let's face it, if, if you're as a parent have grown up with diet culture and you've grown up with parents that were dieting and always strictly apportioning sizes for, you know, their macros and trying to restrain sugar and, you know, always feeling guilty and having a diet jelly for dessert. It's obviously going to be quite challenging to give your kids complete freedom to maybe enjoy chocolate cake after dinner. But I think there's an incredible freedom in that. And from my experience, from the clients that I have, when they allow, when, when I coax them into allowing their children to do that, because they've got a fear that their kids might get fat. And that's what I see is when they allow their children to have the freedom to serve themselves uh, based on their hunger and also based on their pleasure, because let's face it, we're all hardwired for pleasure. When they give their children that freedom, that autonomy, it's very, very rare that kids... Uh, stuff their faces and um, overeat they actually are by virtue they listen to their hunger signals and they stop when they're full and they will leave a bit of cake on their plate versus the setup of as a parent you can only have this much you can't possibly have that we're going to put the biscuit tin away and hide it that actually adds more power to the food and it it actually sets up the, the in the child's mind the food is is somehow wrong and and naughty and and forbidden and so it will create this well what why is it forbidden you know i either i want more of it or i'm fearful of it neither of which is a healthy stance right so mm-hmm. really overall what i what i would say is if you're in this space and if you know that you know as a parent you you've got you've got some kind of legacy uh, diet thinking when it comes to food and it comes to mealtimes and you're worried that your kid might be overeating, uh, you're worried about them serving themselves, you're worried about them leaving something on their plate as well. You know, that, that's a whole other thing that we can get into in a minute, the whole cleaning of the plate um, obsession that many, many parents have and were taught to do themselves. But I think creating a neutral space where children can be a bit more autonomous in how they select and 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 decide on their own fullness and their own hunger is it's such a powerful place to start when it comes to getting rid of the diet culture piece and allowing for a healthy positive dining experience in the home. Yeah, I couldn't agree more and that's in the last year or so I've really gotten into intuitive eating and like talking with my daughter about like how much of this would you like or letting her serve herself. She's four. So sometimes she can and sometimes she can't depending on how hot it is. But you know, the interesting thing I've really observed is you're right. Like sometimes she might be hungry and eat more. Sometimes she might be not as hungry and eat less. But for me, like you talked about with the clean your plate thing, like it takes a little adjustment to not be put off by like wasting food, right? Or not cleaning your plate. But I think when she's serving herself and taking what she's hungry for, there's a lot less food waste overall. And she seems to be more willing to try things when I have her like involved in the process versus just being like, here's a plate of food. I think that's wonderful. And I think also there's something that's quite helpful for the younger kiddies, for parents that have got younger kids and they have got that sort of thing in the back of their mind of, oh God, my kid's not getting enough veggies. They're not having enough nutrients, vitamins, they're all they is pasta, etc. There's something that's quite helpful that I um, encourage and it's, it's encouraging a no thank you bite. So if you just allow... You know, you almost coax the child, your your child into that that spoonful of, you know, broccoli tomato sauce with the pasta and encourage the no thank you. So give the kid the autonomy to try some new things and say, look, you can try it, but you can also say no thank you after you've had a bite, but have a bite because actually they've done a lot of studies and it takes children up to 20 tries of a new food before they might say that they like it. So I guess, you know, for, for the new parents, for the parents that are worried about food diversity and getting, getting the vitamins and having a nutritious variety of foods, be aware that, you know, it's not an overnight thing. Children can actually decide after 20 tries that they do love aubergines and they do love broccoli. So don't give up at the first hurdle, but also really think about giving, giving your child the autonomy to say, no, thanks. 
but you know, try again next time without making it a big drama and without forcing the child to finish what's on their plate. Because when you do that, you create trauma around the mealtime, which is never a good thing. Another personal story around that is my daughter, when she was young, loved mushrooms. And then recent, like semi-recently decided she hated mushrooms. And so mm-hmm. we were like, okay, that's fine, you know? And so everything that had mushrooms, she was not interested. And then we had these like crunchy mushrooms. And my husband was like, these are different. You know, why don't you just try one? Kind of like a no thank you bite. And she tried one and she was like, oh, actually I do like mushrooms. And now she's right. been back on mushrooms again. So yeah. I totally see that in at least encouraging them to keep an open mind, um, yeah. but also having that autonomy. And I think being able to have that autonomy or like control at a young age is so powerful for kids. I totally agree. And I think, you know, having that self-agency over your body as well, being able to, to you know, really uh, celebrate appetite, you know, from a young age and say, look, you're the, you're, the, you're the master of your own appetite. You're the one that's in, living in your body and, you know, respect and honor appetite, allowing, um, it's the physiological set point, right? It's the hunger and it's the fullness and it's the the eating for energy and knowing when enough's enough. And that's kind of the holy grail for most adults who are all striving to finally, finally uh, get this thing right of eating for energy and not having the obsession of finishing everything and not worrying about restriction because we're just listening and working with our bodies. Kids already do this. It's just a lot of the time, unfortunately, adults program it out of them (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and I'm a big believer that you know the more the more you can offer your child the opportunity to practice that that mindfulness and that uh gauging of hunger themselves it will it will all it will all flow you know even if there's a a fear from parents that oh they're just going to eat one food for the next six weeks and within reason you know it very very rarely happens so yeah, I think autonomy with 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 um, with meal times, and also another tip is put um, you know if you're serving a meal with lots of different sort of veggies or you know lots of different components to it, when you've when you've plated up um, a portion at the beginning, um, put the other put the dishes on the table so that children can kind of help themselves if they'd like a little bit more of something because then you can start to gauge oh okay which textures they're enjoying more or less and you know, kind of check in, help them check in with themselves about, is, are you really enjoying that particular side dish? Oh, you like, you know, you like the, you like the cabbage today. Oh, is there something different about the, and, and then it's almost like it's intelligence, right? On the way that your child likes to eat. And I think that can only be a good thing. And it also helps them be more conscious about their, their pleasures, the things that they're enjoying, the things that the textures that they don't like so much. And I think just discussing it and making it kind of it's out there in the open I think it it allows the whole family to be a bit more present and ultimately it gives it gives your child the chance to yeah to be to be to be in dialogue right not only with their body but with the food that's in front of them and I really think that's quite empowering and one of the things I like to do too is just to ask my kids especially my daughter because she's older what they think of the food. And then sometimes if she's like, I'm like, what would make it better? Or like, what could I do to make it different? Or how would you like it? And sometimes it's something really simple. Like one day she was just like, this needs more salt. (laughs) It's like, okay, let's get some salt, you know? (laughs) So it's just, it's kind of neat. And I think also like, as you were talking about your languaging, like my husband and I really love and appreciate food. And we'll talk about like how good a meal is as we're eating it. And it's cute because she'll chime in sometimes and like add in her own kind of thoughts on the meal. And so it's fun. And you do see like her wheels turning as we're discussing it. She's definitely absorbing that, but it's fun to see her join in. Yeah. I think, I think there's that is, I mean, it should be a bonding social shared experience right you know in in its sort of evolution and you know history it was always very much the the meal time around the fire you know going back to ancient times you know food and eating has always been this sort of socially cohesive uh concept and because our lives are just so sped up now as well you know the, the simple act of eating as a family is quite kind of quite revolutionary you know it's it's not the norm in every household so i think to be able to invite children to feel like they've got a voice at the mealtime to be able to comment on the food that they're eating 
and you know connect them to the present moment get the you know invite the whole family to to have a um you know go around the, the table and say so what's been great for you today what's been hard for you today you know make the meal time more than just about the food and actually it becomes an anchoring experience for the whole family to connect about other things that are going on in their lives obviously depending on the child's age but nevertheless i think it's quite a special a special time of the day you know and i i see that food for me at least food is the, the conduit for families to really connect and and i think yeah i think it's beautiful that your daughter feels part of that already you know yeah the other thing i like you brought up last time though is actually kind of setting the table and making it like a little bit of a special occasion and using maybe a special dish or things like that. And with our kids, one of the things I have done since they were babies is I bought like actual, like the silverware that's like silverware for children. It's just small size and it even has like their own little knife, fork and spoon. And so I actually do like set their place settings so that again, like they don't use like kid dishes they actually just use like small size <laughs> I, I think that's so adorable and it just yeah. sort of make it makes me think of I mean I'm massive on ritual when it comes to um present moment awareness of eating because it, it honors the meal it honors as we talked about on the last podcast Amy that I was on with you this whole idea of celebrating the, from the field to the fork you know the provenance where has the food come from what what how many rainstorms did it take to grow the grains you know the farmer that was involved really sort of actually landing in the reverence of a meal and you know what it took to get that meal on the table not just money value but time and effort and and you know, creating this sense of wonder, I think, for children around uh, meals, nutrition, real foods, getting them in the kitchen, cooking, and then seeing this beautiful, delightful, really good smelling dish at the end of that process. I really think that is one of the biggest kind of, um, let's say, it's the biggest ammunition we can give kids against the fast food culture, fast food industries, the, the convenient, you know, the culture of convenience, as mm-hmm. I like to say, you know, the throwaway ready meals, the, you know, the eat it in five minutes and you're hungry an hour later that to create reverence around the meal with these rituals and with the beautiful silverware that you're talking about. Maybe we light a candle. Everybody feels that sense of specialness at the dining table and through the meal. And, and it, that, that entire meal will be um, experienced so differently, not just in the energy of the, the, the moment, but in the way that the body metabolizes it, the way that it, your body digests it because you're relaxed and you're there, you're present to the meal, you know, you're not running to the biscuit tin an hour later because you, you scoffed down your meal and you didn't really even mentally observe it. So for me, whether it's kids or adults, creating ritual around mealtimes is an incredibly powerful way to slow our bodies down, get them into the rest and digest, you know, the parasympathetic nervous system, the place where we optimally digest where we, um, we are in uh, true uh, receiving, you know, we create more digestive enzymes in that state. And ultimately, you know, who doesn't want to eat a family meal in a relaxed, calm, celebratory manner versus rushed, stressed, checked out? You know, it, it's sort of a no-brainer. Part of um, the thing with using real dishes and silverware with the kids too is I want them to know, like, I trust you that you can use this. And then Mm. also to teach the kids that they can trust themselves. And I think that's a really huge piece of this. Yeah, agreed. I think the self-trust bit and also don't, don't underestimate a child's intelligence to be able to show up for themselves at a meal, you know, and it's very hard sometimes going to, to friends' houses. I'm not a parent myself yet, but I have two beautiful nephews and my sister-in-law is brilliant at very much offering a, you know, a, a kind of a smorgasbord. She'll always give, there's lots of little things that they can try if they like. And obviously they've got their preferred um, flavors and textures, but the, I love the fact that she is, she allows them to be little adults. You know, she allows them to be, as much as it possible, self-governing around uh, food and and autonomous, like we were talking about, and and that includes mm-hmm. even includes down to giving them the adult uh, cutlery and the adult plates, you know, and just yeah, 
uh, yeah. saying saying you you know this isn't a, this isn't a baby setting this is you know you're 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 four and you're six and you're allowed to make some decisions on your own and we trust you. And I think they really step up to that trust as well. Mm -hmm. So let's talk, this is such, I think this is kind of one of the key areas, but it's so difficult. The impact or the negative impact of food as a punishment or a reward. And we already hit on that a little bit, but let's talk about how we can change that and do things differently. Great question. And it's so, so common. I mean, I grew up in a household where, you know, unless I ate every single soggy vegetable, there was no chance of a donut for dessert. Forget it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I really remember that, that uh, <laughs> kind of tactical eating until you don't feel very well because you knew that you always had a bit of room for some pudding. And I, you know, parents do this to the best of intentions because they want their child to eat the veggies. But at the same time, I think Food as reward is something that then, if you set up that piece when you're young, we tend to carry that idea into our adult lives of rewarding ourselves, self-soothing, let's say, when life gets tough. And there's, there's, a, there's some interesting scientific studies on um, vanilla ice cream being the number one uh, pleasure food of women and also one of the biggest foods, at least in the 80s and 90s, that was given um, Wall's ice cream as a, as a reward after dinner. And a huge correlation between the, the desire for women um, in, their, in their sort of 20s and 30s to pick up on vanilla as a comfort food and as a reward food because they were, they were eating a lot of that or they were receiving that as a reward when they were children. And it's, it's interesting, you know, because we are... I don't know, as humans, we're almost designed to fall into that pleasure reward um, mindset because of the chemicals that get released in the brain, you know, the dopamine high when we feel we've done something right, you know, there's the the chemical cascade that happens when we receive sugar as well. So there's a correlation between reward, sugar, the chemical structure that that creates in our bodies and the urge to want more of that um, feeling because it feels good. And it tastes delicious. So, you know, you don't really reward somebody with a bowl of broccoli. And I think there's a correlation between reward being sweet because um, it's very satiating. And, you know, we have a lot of sweet taste buds on our tongue. So it's natural that we do reward, um, reward children with a sweet food. But I also think that there's a way to get around it or a way to overcome this, this habit that a lot of parents have is to to reward with creativity, you know, to reward with something that's not edible, to, to take the idea of um, reward being synonymous with otherwise being punished um, and also make treats uh, spontaneous, you know, treats don't have to be a reward. They could be, uh, and I'm talking edible treats here, but, you know, a brownie because it tastes delicious and you've just been for a long walk as a family and you'll get home and you, you have a brownie. It's not because anyone's been good or anyone's done a great homework uh, or they did, you know, they got a, got a medal in gym class, but it just is, you know, and, and creating that spontaneous treats rather than the treat having something loaded, uh, a kind of a loaded significance. So I call this randomizing treats. It, it sort of take it dis, deconstructs that idea that food is always um, reward-based and also denying a child food is therefore by virtue a potential punishment. So yeah, two things there, randomize the treats, don't make them always attached to an event or a well done. Um, And um, yeah, try and find alternatives to to rewards that are non-edible. So Paint, you know, a painting uh, time, you know, some new paints maybe and give, give children the opportunity to indulge their imagination or get creative or, um, you know, something beautiful like you're, you're at a beach or you're in a forest and um, there's a reward of, you know, some beautiful shells or, I don't know, other things that, that children might respond to that aren't always around food. And I think, I think that's kind of a nice place to start. One of the other things I think about is like emotion tied to taste and how sometimes sweet and love kind of go together, like trying to show love or express love. Um, What are your thoughts around that? You've hit on something really, really powerful because, you know, really the sweet 
sweet milk is sweet mother's milk is very sweet and it's the first thing that we taste as, as babies you know or we have some form of milk and we are as i said before we are really hardwired for for sweet and i think it's so often used as this, uh, you know, it's the original source of comfort for us, let's say. And I also think, you know, there's so much, there's so much marketing and so much kind of conditioning around sweets being uh, synonymous with love and romance. And, you know, you give a box of chocolates on Valentine's Day or, you know, a birthday cake or, you know, there's, there's so, so many kind of examples of sweetness being uh, celebratory and about relationships and love and an expression of love. Um, so, yeah, I feel like there's a very understandable and human uh, association with sugar, sweetness, love. And also, you know, when it's not there, when genuine love isn't there, um, as I see in clients, it's all too common to try and fill the void with, and the most common one is ice cream. Um, I think because of the texture, it's soothing, it's comforting. Um, and, you know, really sincerely, I think a lot of the time people do substitute love for um, chocolate and also, you know, ice creams and sweet foods because it does release that dopamine and, and that, that feel-good chemical in the brain, albeit momentarily. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. It's very interesting and one to be, to be aware of as a parent. And the next thing I wanted to really get into, which just scares me to death, to be honest, is talking about teens and preteens and how social media is really leading to, like you said, this social virus of body dysmorphia and just um, so much. And it's so hard, I think, for kids now and for parents. I totally agree. It's something that I'm researching quite a lot at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of writing a bit of a manifesto for parents who've got preteen kids because I feel like we are in a moment of our world where we really are fighting a bit of a, a, a tough tidal wave of online body perfectionism, uh, filtering, body dysmorphia. You know, the, the, the media obviously perpetuating very um, one-dimensional ideas about beauty and about health and about wellness and it's all having to fit into a very narrow mold let's say and obviously there's a counter movement I mean well not obvious maybe maybe aren't people aren't aware but there isn't a counter movement there's a there's a very real body positivity body neutrality health at every size movement that encourages the idea of your body being an instrument for you to feel strong and 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 well in not an ornament for you to look at and perfect in the gym every day nevertheless we're in a society right now where i i believe we are more kind of aesthetically preoccupied than ever um you know there's a dove study that was done i think it was a while ago now uh, back into i think it was 2004 2005 and even then they did that they 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 kind of found out that eighty one percent of kids in the in the u s girls of of ten, around the age of ten are as frightened um of getting fat as they are their parents dying of cancer. So what does that tell us about the level of fear and the indoctrination of fat phobia that permeates our society and it's not limited to the u s you know this is very much in Europe and the u k as well. Um, so how do we, how do we kind of, uh, empower ourselves as parents and as individuals who are around children to be able to give them the tools of self-awareness to know what's real and what's not online? You know, teens are spending up to nine hours a day on their smartphones at the moment in, in 2020, believe it or not, nine hours a day. That's nine hours of potential exposure to the skinny tea brands and the diet this and that you know the the Weight Watchers um, child equivalent uh, rhetoric you know they actually Weight Watchers brought out a child, kids app on how to get kids dieting under ten which I did a whole oh my gosh uh, I did an Instagram uh, um, video rant about that when it came out last year because I just couldn't believe. They were then going after the kids, you know. So this this diet rhetoric, this you, you're you know you've got to 
fit a certain body size. Otherwise, you know, there's the obesity messaging and the, you know, the, it's so pervasive. And I think the, 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 best, the best way that parents can arm themselves to, to empower their kids, to allow their kids to see their bodies as instruments of, of magic and, and uh, healthy, vibrant, young souls, you know, with bodies that are changing, you know, teen, teen, teenage girls are meant to put on weight, like hormonally, we, we were meant to have a bit of puppy fat, you know, it was preparing us for the next stage of our body's evolution. And it's so feared nowadays, it makes me really sad, actually, that Kids are either, you know, they, they have to fit a certain mold. And I think a lot of the time it's around parents don't help sometimes because they have their own idea of what their child should look like. And the reality is your child's body is going to develop and mature as it, as it does, you know. And the, the best thing we can do is to invite positive thinking around um, your body's potential. So thinking about what your body can do, not what it looks like. So positive movement, you know, get, inviting kids to get off their screens and get into nature, uh, inviting them to uh, really um, dive into the kind of positive movement that they love, whether that's swimming or dance or horse riding or whatever it might be. Um, really, really, I plea for parents listening to this, don't get your kids on scales. You know, that for me is like, you're just you're just setting up a child for a lifetime of obsession around scales and numbers and metrics and measuring their self-worth based on maybe how much water they've retained that day, not even how much they weigh sincerely. Um, and then the other tip or the other, the other urgent sort of thing I believe we need more of is getting kids or preteens and teens to as much as they can get in the kitchen and start cooking with you, you know, feel this field to fork mentality um, empowering children and teenagers to really recognize the provenance of fresh food and understanding what it takes to cook it and giving them that power to cook meals for the family and being really being a key player in the kitchen, you know, so that they can get closer to food, they can appreciate it, they can value it. And you're, you know, the, the exposure to a nutritional meal versus what tends to be the case in a lot of schools, unfortunately, in high schools, which is foods uh, that are in the canteen that aren't nutritionally supportive, you know, empower your preteens and, and your teenage kids to, teenagers, to actually get get up close and personal to the food, you know, so that they're not fearful of it. They're, they're not buying into that body dysmorphic uh, or, or that kind of diet rhetoric of, can only eat fat free this and fat free that and and really i think they're that's the strongest way to kind of combat this idea of children spending many many hours online comparing themselves to to other kids and fearing food and you know try and try and get them off their screens and into into the natural world as much as possible and also from the technology point of view it's worth you know it's it's necessary to say that yeah they're going to be on their screens i don't think there's any way around that i'm you know it's too ideological to say Children are going to be much keener to be out, you know, playing sports with their friends than they will be on their phones. I think we all know that, unfortunately, we're in a very much a digital world where children now are digital natives. You know, we, they, they grew up with the Internet. They grew up with Snapchats and Instagram. So to combat that, the other thing that I'm finding really, really important to um, invite parents, clients that are parents of kids and they're worried because they, you know, everyone shares this fear with me uh, when we start working together is to co-curate their feeds. And by that, I mean, uh, sit with your, sit with your sons, sit with your daughters, you know, let's get this out in the open. Let's not pretend it's not happening. There's an awful lot of influencers online that are really good and are really body, body positive and are talking about great stuff and really coaxing um, that message of diversity and self-acceptance and self-celebration and, you know, love your curves and everybody's different and that's great and that's okay and beauty is a broad spectrum. You've also got your influencers who are being paid by God knows how many diet companies and, you know, perpetuating a myth, frankly, that uh, is, you know, a physical ideal that is just not attainable. Um, and the, apparently if you drink certain teas, it will get you, it will get you there. So I like to get parents of kids that are clients of mine to 
sit with their sit with their tweens and their teenagers and you know get get real with them ask them how how do you feel after you've scrolled for an hour uh, does that make you feel good does that lift you does that ins- does that person that you're reading all those posts of is that woman inspiring you what's she doing is she an artist you know is she is she a writer is she a um, a performer what's she doing that really inspires you or do you come away from your scroll feeling really deflated does it make you feel insecure you, does it make you feel you know crummy about your own body and if it does let's work together to co-curate to get things on your newsfeed that make you feel amazing that inspire you to go and chase your dreams and you know go out there and take the world by storm because that's how we empower the young women and men of today you know we have to understand that they have role models and it's about inviting them to be really really aware of selecting their media just like adults should be aware of what what are we putting in our minds every day you know as much as we're putting on our plate and that's why my business is called mind and plate because it's the thoughts that we feed ourselves and it's the content that we consume as much as the meals that we consume that set up the relationship we have to food and body. And if we can give kids that awareness and help and sort of support them and champion them to be really mindful of the media that they're bringing into their lives and how it makes them feel, whether it lifts them up or not, then I think it's a really good way to um, acknowledge that technology is here. It's not going anywhere, but we still have some level of... um, empowerment self-empowerment around that and we can we can choose what we let in and, and what we don't and I think children you know we can we can we can translate that message through to teenagers as well I love everything you said there and I think there's so many pieces um, that are really key to unpack and I think one of the things you talked about is how social media makes you feel and I know I've seen multiple reports of um, an increased prevalence of depression related to like how long people are spending on social media, not just kids, but also adults. And I think when it comes to modeling, I think as adults, we too can be spending quite a time, you know, quite a lot of time on social media. So not only encouraging your children to spend less time, but also modeling that behavior um, yeah. and really being present, like you said. And I love the idea of going through the feed and really finding people or influencers or things that make you feel good and positive. And that's something I've personally done. And it's just such a different experience. And that's really scaled down to things that I really appreciate or are beautiful or inspiring more so than just all the stuff. (laughs) It's it's a game changer. I agree. I've done that. I did the same a couple of years ago. and, And I think, you know, being aware of the level of insidiousness in media but also the brilliance you know the the brilliant people out there doing brilliant things and we you know you know the difference in how that makes you feel it, it gets you fired up and excited and inspired or you know depending on what you have running through your your social media feeds it can make you feel incredibly insecure and I think another thing that um just to mention to listeners that I like to do and I've, I've started to invite clients to do is to, I mean, the obvious one is no phones on the dinner table. You know, this is key for present presence mm. within the family. Parents, do the right thing. Don't have your phones on the table. You know, be present because it really does. It sends that message to children that, you know, phones are not, not part of the eating experience, which is always good. And also um, two other things. I've um, started sort of suggesting people do a phone-free Sunday. So having the whole family turn off their phones from say after breakfast on a Sunday till after the dinner in the evening. So, you know, they probably want to scroll a little bit on a Sunday night, but just having that rest, all of you, you know, it's not like one of you's doing it and the other one isn't. It's like all of you. It just creates so much presence within the family. And I found that that has an, a, a really positive impact as does the invitation for women, um, the mothers, the mums that I coach, to suggest to them, to dare them, to have a makeup-free Sunday if they've got tween daughters, because there's so much filtering, obviously, that that is synonymous with the online world now. You know, Photoshop and filtering. I think a lot of a lot of teenage girls don't really uh, appreciate that skin tone is not, you know, it's not a magazine spread. 
and you know makeup is 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 something that is extra it's not you know a lot of these models that they're seeing have spent six hours in makeup to look that natural so actually getting mums to just go makeup free and allowing their daughters to see you know no no makeup is is you know, being being in your rawness, I guess, is so is such a wonderful gift to give daughters because it's it's that self acceptance piece, and it really translates down. And I do think about transgenerational friendship of women in your family as well, and how like your relationship with grandmother and things um, can influence and having those positive role models, you know, who are older can be really helpful. And I think part of what I'm getting at here is also looking at like the genetics and like appreciating the history of your family and where you come from and like the build of your body and not Mm. trying to be outside of that or look like somebody else, but really appreciating like who you are and where you come from. I I love that. I love it. Yeah. Actually it it makes me think of a chapter in the um, woman that run with wolves, the Clarissa Estes, Dr. Clarissa Estes book, which I just, I mean, if, if people are listening, it's just a mind-blowing, beautiful book on the mythology of the wild woman. And there's a whole chapter on the flesh and, and the body and the female form. And she talks about this, actually, because she's, you know, she's Mexican. She says, you know, I'm a stocky, solid, you know, I, I, I'm in my skin, you know. She's in her bones, mm-hmm. she's in her skin. And very self-accepting of that, but, you know, saw throughout her life women rejecting themselves in their own form. And, and she makes a great point about by rejecting our own figure and our own form, we're kind of rejecting our ancestors as well mm. because that's where we came from. And, and to try and want to fit into the mold of, say, a tall, live Scandinavian, you're denying your own lineage in a way, you know, your own physicality because that's come from somewhere. And it... I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing her in a much less sophisticated way, but it's just a, it's a beautiful reminder that we are all different shapes and sizes and no less feminine or more beautiful. You know, it, it's just the social conditioning that's wrong. It's not us. It's the conditioning that sets us up to feel less than if we don't fit a particular mold. And, and I think, yeah, the, the point about the ancestry and, um, celebrating age as well. I mean, I could go on all night about this, but you know, in certain cultures, obviously, the, the, the aging skin and the, the wrinkle lines and the, the wisdom on a, on a woman's face. And in Asia, this seems to be well. Asia's got I don't know. There's a certain degree of hypocrisy around Asia and skin bleaching and you know other kind of quite aggressive forms of, of beauty. But there does seem to be more respect and more reverence for the beauty of, of aging women as opposed to in the West, which just seems to be so obsessed with youth that, you know, it's almost like post, post 35, 40, you're, you're invisible. And, and there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's so much to be said for beauty and wisdom and, and, and aging and morphing and changing as something that's to be celebrated and not, yeah, not, not, not regarded as, as um, not regarded as negative, you know, but regarded as another stage of life and another expression of somebody. Um, don't know if that makes complete sense or not, but oh, absolutely, it sure does. As we approach kind of the end of the interview, are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with? I mean, it's such a big piece, isn't it? The, yeah, the family, the family meal time positivity. Um, I mean, the things that I would say really, they, you know, they apply to the people that I coach that don't have kids. It's, you know, it's, there's some fundamentals that uh, I think um, really support the, the capacity to create positive experiences around meals in the home. And also, you know, by virtue, giving children a kind of a backbone of confidence and autonomy when it comes to how they feed themselves, how they choose and that will go forward into their adult lives, no doubt about it. You know, you, to, to create these structures, these positive structures at home early on from the get-go, I think it's a huge gift to give children and it's a huge way to uh, offset the, um, the diet languaging that inevitably they're going to come up against in our current culture. So I really think, you know, making meals sociable, making them a chance to connect with your family members, to be seen, to be heard, 
um, to encourage autonomous eating where possible, you know, allow children the freedom to choose how much they want to eat, allow them to leave what's on their plate, allow them to take seconds if they're still hungry. So autonomy, freedom, building a relaxing environment to eat in. Nobody wants to go into a stressful dining experience. Children are very receptive to that. So, you know, as much as parents, listeners that our parents can, um, try and try and coax a, a calming relaxing setting for kids and also you know get them involved get them involved in the, in the cooking experience so that they have more of a connection to the food not just when it's presented on a plate in front of them because that builds curiosity and when you've got curiosity uh, children are a lot more likely to dive into um, you know the, the provenance of food and appreciate the nutritional value of it a lot more um, so yeah it's really it's kind of the basics you know but I think allowing allowing children autonomy would be one of the biggest things that I would advise or, or suggest and keeping keeping fear and guilt and other negative emotions off the table really you know I really see those emotions as quite polluting and just avoid diet talk you know if you really are doing the keto or the, the clean 30 or whatever the, the latest plan is really like try and have the, the meals free from all of that and you know eating the same thing as your children will allow them to feel comfortable and confident that they're part of a whole and that they're not you know eating something different to their parents so yeah there are just a few more tips for you I know I asked you this last time but I'll ask you again what does the word nourish mean to you <sighs> lots of things but I feel I feel for me right now in my life nourishment is something that transcends the, the physical act of eating and it's very much about being aware of all of the input in your life that brings you joy, brings you energy, brings you fulfillment, helps to sustain you. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a nourishment is like a big wheel. And I see that there's lots of different spikes in our lives that all serve into that wheel. And food is definitely one of them for me, you know, um, so yeah, I would say nourishment for me is 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 choo being choose being mindful and conscious of all the things that you imbibe, whether it's the thoughts that you think, the food that you eat, the conversations that you have, um, the environment, the, the 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 energies around you that really allow you to live your and support you to live your fullest life. I know our listeners will want to find out more about you and connect with you online. What are the best places for them to do that? They can find me uh, on my Facebook, which is Mind and Plate. And they can also find me on Instagram, which my handle is the same. So at Mind and Plate. And I am just tinkering with a new website. So hopefully by the time this uh, podcast airs, I will, um, they'll be able to visit me at my new website, which is www.mindandplate.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for being on the podcast again. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a lovely chat. Thank you so much for listening to Nourish and Shine. I hope that you enjoy this episode and that you'll leave me a review on iTunes so that more people can hear the podcast. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I would love to hear your questions, so please send them my way. Also, you can check out my website. It's amysapola.com. I hope that today's interview provided you with some inspiration and practical advice to nourish your mind, body, and spirit, optimize your health, and to live a whole vibrant life. Please join me again next week for another amazing interview. Have a wonderful week.